All right, we'll go ahead and get started on the class here today, and uh, then we will we'll open with prayer, and then we'll dig, dig into the third and fourth centuries. So let's pray. Lord, your, your goodness is abundant, and we are really thankful that we can be in God's house today. Thank you that we can be with believers and encouragement, hopefully in a challenge to those that do not follow you. Lord, we are really blessed today to be able to have a couple baptisms in the church service. And uh, it, is, it is not a small thing seeing these young people say, I want to follow Christ. I want to identify with the body of Christ. I want to obey him. I love my Savior. I want to get baptized. So, Lord, we are truly thankful. Um, we know there's, there's churches all over our world that maybe haven't had baptisms in years and years. And... Uh, we're thankful for the, for the goodness that you abundantly show to us. And Lord, thank you that we can study church history, that it's not just a bunch of dead people who did some boring things, but you worked in your magnificent way throughout history, um, the plan of redemption, bringing people to yourself. And thank you that we can know a little bit of that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll move pretty quickly today. Andrew's going to... Uh, spend about the last eight or ten minutes uh, teaching a little bit on Blendina, and uh, we're looking forward to that. So I will just pick up today where we were last week. Um, this is a picture right here. Um, that's Constantine, is uh, the guy without the beard, and that is Arius down there on the ground groveling because he he was condemned. It's probably Alexander, who is a bishop of uh, Alexandria, Egypt, to Constantine's right. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at some of this later on, but I just wanted you to see it as you see it right there. Um, issues the church was combating in these years were messy Christianity, false claims by pagans, and really a, a worn out, weary, persecuted church. Um, those were some, some tough, tough times. We talked a little bit about the messiness of Christianity at that time. And uh, one thing is, as I interact with missionaries or as I interact with my neighbors way out in the country or as we interact with people here in Owensboro, uh, the idea of syncretism comes up uh, repeatedly, kind of the idea of mixing local religion with Christianity and kind of making it this mishmash of religion. And, and we think of that in deepest, darkest Africa, and certainly it, can, it happens there, but it can happen here as well. Um, uh, Natalie had a, you know, Bellevue does a terrific job bringing in internationals and having international churches, and they had lost an international pastor. Um, I think it was a Congolese congregation, their Congolese congregation there. And um, so they... They, the guy had moved out, so they went and found a, this other guy, and people said, oh yeah, this guy's really good, he really knows Jesus, he, he's, he's the real deal. They talked to him, and like, you know, he sounds pretty good, but his, his French and our interpreter's French weren't jiving too well. We think he was good, but we just were unsure, so they went and met with him another time, and they came back after the second time, this is like two months ago, and he was a Mormon. <laughs> and uh, I laugh, but... He passed the first muster because language barrier was so difficult, and he, he thought the Bible was great, and he thought Jesus was great, and he thought God was great, and, you know, the, the, the better interpreter surely helped them out. 
But you think of the, the mishmash of using religious terms and putting them together and what can happen. Picture a, a completely polytheistic society. So monotheism doesn't sound weird to us today. If someone says, I believe in one God, I mean, Islam believes that, Judaism believes that, Christianity believes that. It, it, most of the people you know, if they believe in God, they believe in one of them. And so if you hear of polytheism, you think, poly, multiple gods, gods all over the place. But, you know, first, second, third, fourth century, nobody had heard of monotheism. You believe in one God other than those weird Jews? That was basically it. And so in any kind of society, it would be, what are you doing? And then you go and share Christ. The concept of Trinity is difficult for us as well. But in a, in a culture of three and one, how can this be? You, you worship three. Well, maybe we should take off this Jesus because it seems like he just showed up on the scene at a later time. And so um, we'll, we'll see during the time of Athanasius, there were probably more people that were non-believers, that were non-Trinitarian, that did not believe in the deity of Christ in the quote-unquote Christian world than there were true believers. And so when Athanasius is saying, no, 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 this cannot be, it's a bigger challenge than we can even, even comprehend. So, I mean, terrible messiness in the Christianity at that time. And if you get frustrated today when you read friends on social media or you're interacting with people at another church or in our church or whatever it might be, and you think, how can there be so much diversity uh, times 10 back then? I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, I'm not a Christian. This is what a Christian is. Uh, the Bible is not in our language. Really, really big challenges there. And, you know, if you think of Paul opposing Peter to his face, the, the need for Christians to speak truth to other Christians and the need for Christians to speak truth to non-believers has been there since God created this world. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, we had looked at uh, Novation's controversy a little bit uh, where there were lapsed Christians and the non-lapsed Christians and who had burned incense to the emperor. Um, the Donatists had a similar kind of thing. And I just want to reference this because it kind of comes back again later probably today. But they had kind of a similar thing in North Africa where um, there was persecution. This would be the last persecution under Diocletian. So this would be in the late 200s. And um, intense persecution, especially in North Africa, and um, they were, you know, bring us your, your Bibles or your Christian writing, and we're, going to, uh, and we're going to burn that. And if you burned your religious writing, then you could, you know, go home and be free and not die as, as a Christian. And so they had groups all over in these churches in North Africa, and uh, who sent their Bibles to be burned and who did not, you know, any Christian right and, and by Bible, that you probably did not have an entire copy, but you might have a portion of it. Specifically, church leaders might have a portion. So the church leaders were being brought in. Many of them were having their Bibles burned. Many of them were you know, seeking to make themselves a copy and then taking them to be burned. And, and then they were coming back and saying, so you'd give the word of God to be burned and you think you can pastor again? And there was tons of controversy connect, connected with that. The Donatists kind of removed themselves from any other group of recognized Christianity for probably over 200 years, maybe 200 and 250 years. So lots and lots of, of drama at this time. Um, we have some uh, claims by pagans 
Far from us, say the Christians, be any man, this is from Celsus, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. That's from Celsus. Origen wrote against him. But this would be kind of the normal thinking of the day. And so most of us like to be well thought of by people in society. And most of us like people to think, hey, he's a Christian, but he's, he's at least good at this, or he's good at this family, or he's this. This is like the normal social thinking of the day. This is how pathetic Christians are, according to this pagan Celsus. And then uh, Pliny says, I do not know what to do with the Christians. Uh, is just being a Christian enough to punish? He's writing a letter saying, hey, what do I do with these Christian people? Is being a Christian enough to punish, or must something bad actually have been done? Uh, what I have done in the case of those who admitted they were Christians, was order them sent to Rome if they were citizens. If not, I just have them killed. I was sure they deserved to be punished because they were so stubborn. So, I mean, I read that and I think, and there's really challenging things in our world today, but I've never been, I'm going to be killed, not because I did anything wrong, but because I was stubborn and I wouldn't go along with someone. So keep context in our challenges of the day and uh, even just thinking through the myriads of, and, and we often in church history, we, we deal with the famous people, and rightly so. These are the people that we're learning about, and these are the people that did writing. But there was the regular 32-year-old mom, and there was the 52-year-old single guy, and there was the 16-year-old kid, and this was the daily life. People might kill me because I haven't done anything. I'm just competent part of society, but I'm going to be put to death. So these are some pretty serious things. Um, and just weary, persecuted believers. Um, the picture that I have right there, um, it's called Last Prayer, I think. But you see the people being killed. And uh, again, Andrew's going to teach a little bit at the very end. And uh, just a whole, you know, you can, you can do a lot of reading at this time of, of the persecution and think, I can't, I can't imagine living that life. Um, but I, I saw one author that said this, and I think this is terrific. He says, what is the Christian defense against the attack from Rome? It says, we conquer the dragon, and then he quotes Revelation 12, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And I think, I think of you know, being a dad and you're trying to protect your kids or being, you know, a grandma or whatever the age might be. But that, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, they love not their lives even unto death. I think that's, that's just terrific. And uh, it's a challenge to us as, uh, as believers. Um, here, um, some, so, so these struggles in the early church that we've reviewed, what are some, some ways they, comp, they, they fought against that in the years 200 to 400? Or a big one was, is normal graces of preaching and teaching and church life. And there isn't as much writing about that. We, we tend to look at some of the other things that, that will be up on the screen. But that was a huge part of, it would be a group of believers like this, and we probably would be much, much fewer. And we're just saying, you can do it this week. Not because you're so strong. No, they, they could knock down the door of your house and kill you. But you can do it because we're looking to Jesus. And we were, we were going to sing together. And we have some portions of scripture that we can look at together. And we're going to look to Christ. You can do it. And 
I hope to eat at your house on Tuesday. You hope to eat at my house on Thursday. But if we're killed, I'm going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb with you someday. That was, that was the norm. And so these, these normal graces that are kind of going away as important in the United States, uh, in Europe, in people that profess Christ and say, nah, I don't need to be there, maybe every once in a while, whatever. And that time, man, I want to be together. I, I, I want to be together with my other believers. There's only 12 of us. There used to be 22 of us, but this is where I want to be. I want to know Christ more. So those normal graces are a big deal. Um, a little bit of writing on that. Uh, Tertullian says there was frequent fasting among those in the early church, and they expected persecution. Cyprian was really into, and he died in 258, Cyprian was really into unity. He wrote a, a, letter, a letter to Smyrna, and he said, unity, 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 unity. Um, pushed it, you know, everybody's fighting, everybody has all these differences. Pull it together. We're, we're looking to Christ. Uh, Eusebius, he, he has a lot of writing on, on morals of Christians, because he, he finds it really interesting. Uh, at that time, you know, men had a lot of power and could could often do what they wanted with women, especially in different contexts. And uh, Eusebius like, here's these women. They would rather be thrown out of their house than be forced to sleep with their husband's friend or whomever. What is the deal with, who, who's ever heard of this kind of morality? Like they, they have this, they're really, really serious about this. Um, here are these, now Eusebius took it a little farther. He was like, we really like this lady. She killed herself rather than falling to this guy's advances and stuff, so we wouldn't really encourage suicide. Uh, but he, like, he was like, they are super serious about their morals. Really, really interesting. This was a, a pusher of Christianity is more than just something they talk about. This changes their life. Um, John Costostrum, John of the Golden Mouth, he's known. Uh, he was born in around 350 in Antioch, just so if you can kind of picture kind of the curve of the Mediterranean, right, as it um, is going into what is Turkey now. So he lived in, in Antioch right there. Um, and he, he was known as really unusual because he was a really literal preacher. He was a terrific speaker, but he was a really literal preacher. And he would, he would take the word, and a goal of his was he would teach it, and he would want to teach it and make it understandable to you, but also not in a way many early pastors and writers at that time would want to find the hidden meaning that no one else could find. And so it would be, wow, you know, Keith Withrow is so amazing because he found this crazy nugget that no one in the universe would ever find. That's the guy we want as our preacher. Christostom said, no, 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 no. I want it to be every man a minister, every, you know, the priesthood of the believer. I want this to be understanding, understandable and simple and plain. And we can I can understand this too. And, and we seek to do that, I would certainly hope, as pastors today, but that was pretty unusual at the time. Uh, he ended up going up to Constantinople. And um, yeah, well, that's, that's all we'll say about him. Um, writing was a big thing, apologetic writing. Some of the same things that even happen today. You have apologetic writing, which is defense of the faith. Hey, this is a defensible faith. There's a reason this, this fits logically, this fits morally, this fits in real life, and it came to us from God. Tertullian, lots of different writers did apologetic writing, Justin Martyr, others. Um, then there was a fair amount, there was some, some kind of how-to writing that we, even, we have that today as well. Um, it is, you know, the, the Didache, and that was earlier than the time period we're looking at, but it would be, 
kind of a how-to church manual and say, hey, you're going to have singing in the church, you're going to have praying in the church, you're going to have an opening of scripture in church, and this is what it should kind of look like in a church. Um, Polycarp, again, earlier than our time period here, wrote a letter encouraging faithfulness. Uh, it's got over 60 quotes from, from the New Testament in it. Shepherd of Hermes. Um, Athanasius wrote on the incarnation. We'll look at Athanasius a little bit later. We talked about Cyprian and his epistle to Smyrna. So lots of apologetic writing, encouraging writing, kind of a you-can-do-it writing um, that was a big deal at that time, especially when now, you know, it's so easy to have books. You know, printers, you get a bunch of books, they're eight bucks a piece, you're good to go. You know, at that time, you're handwriting and handwriting. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty incredible how those, how those got passed around. Um, another way to combat struggles were creeds. Dwayne's going to actually lead us in some creeds, uh, Baldwin, next week. Um, but we do have one here. The Apostles' Creed was done at this time, probably 250-ish or even a little bit before. And uh, I actually heard... a little four-year-old at our church quoted this to me on Friday morning, and uh, I couldn't always understand her pronunciation, but I think she got the whole thing. Uh, I do not have it memorized, so I'll read it to you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, um, and um, descended into hell is often underneath that. That probably didn't come around until about the 5th century, uh, but, but many times the Apostle Cre Apostles' Creed has this. And one of the reasons I wanted to have this, you know, we, we think of different creeds that are out there, and depending on your church background, you might have read a creed every week, or maybe you have uh, no connection with creeds at all. I know when we did a church plant, we had, uh, we had a creed that we went through for a while, and we had a visitor lady one time, and she said, uh, I don't know about you Catholics, but I'm not having any, I'm not coming here ever again because we don't do that. And I said, well, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but there's actually some good. There is a lot of good. And if we went through this slowly, what's inaccurate in here? It's really, really good stuff. Um, the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the father almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic being universal church, the uh, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And um, we might have Roman Catholics in here. I don't know that. But um, one thing to think about with church history, people can think, well, boy, I don't want to talk about some of that early stuff. It's all Catholics back then, but, you know, bring me Martin Luther and, and, and we'll be good to go. But if, if you get a, a good understanding of church history, Roman Catholicism as developed as well. And so um, you look at the church at this time, I, I would never say uh, that it was a, a Roman Catholic church at that time, Catholic being universally, I would say that. Um, I personally, I lean Pope Gregory. I, th I think he had a lot of push there. I think there were kind of uh, push towards the Roman Catholic church being it is today. And, and even many of this stuff um, would be during the Middle Ages, even response to, Ref to Reformation, some decisions that were made. So don't be afraid of, of early church. It's, it's terrific stuff. Um, there's creeds. And then the last one, the fourth one would be councils. And Dwayne's actually going to be covering some councils again uh, this next week. Um, we're going to look a little bit. Let's talk 
Nicaea just a little bit here. So um, most of the councils would be after the, the, the time period we're going to be looking at, at least the kind of the famous ones. Uh, this is Athanasius right here. So the, um, and we're going to look at Constantine in just a little bit at the end. So it's a little bit out of order, but it fits with kind of how I want us to think of problems and how do we answer these problems. So councils would be the last way that we answer these problems. So um, Nicaea is in North Turkey. Uh, Constantine has recently converted to Christianity. I would argue he was not a believer, but he, he officially converted and the, the country was converting kind of, sort of. We we'll look at that a little bit more. Um, in Alexandria, Egypt, you've got um, Arius was pushing really hard. Arius was a, a likable guy. He was a musician, at least of some level. So he, he got popular songs connected to his theology. And his theology was that Jesus was just a mere man. So the God was God the Father and God the Spirit. And Jesus was just a super good guy. Um, the similar to like some similarities to Jehovah's Witnesses today, some similarities to Mormons today. And uh, it was really, really popular. I, again, if we were a group of Christians in Alexandria, you guys would all be followers of Arius and probably the, the, the back three rows might as well. And these would be the ones that say, no, I believe in the deity of Christ. And so if you were talking with friends and you're like, hey, I'm a Christian, they don't know what Christian means. And so if you struggle with that today, if you've ever lived out West in a Mormon area where, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yep, I'm a Christian. You got to talk a while before you get to what do you really believe? And it, and it could be with some others as well that you interact with. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you have to get down to definitions of, well, how are you defining justification? Or how, if, if, if you deal with that, and I'm sure you do, or someone says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good Baptist boy and I go to a good Baptist church and I don't follow Jesus really. I mean, it's, it's somewhat of a similar thing. Um, so uh, Athanasius is a young guy. He's known as, some people would call him the Black Dwarf. So he grew up uh, south on the Nile, was dark-skinned and very, very short and very, very smart. And he's just a deacon at the time. He's not a, he's not a bishop. Alexander's the bishop at the time of Alexandria. And uh, they, go to, they travel all the way to Nicaea. And uh, Constantine is there. And only the bishops can go to the meeting. But Athanasius, to a level, we don't really know at what level, because he becomes the famous guy from Nicaea, but at some level, they were getting out and coming to Athanasius, and he was like, hey, remind him of this, and remind him of this, and remind him of this tomorrow. Okay, group up, talk about it, let's see you again tomorrow. And so, days and days and days, and they came out, and Arius was condemned. I showed you that first slide. Um, Arius goes back to Alexandria. Athanasius goes back to Alexandria. He just wants to be a regular guy again. He becomes the, the bishop of Alexandria. Constantine, his Christianity is kind of a, I want us to all get along and I want the, the country to be unified. So Constantine says, Athanasius, you do not withhold communion from uh, Arius and you tell him he's a great guy. You guys be buds. We're all going to be friends here. And Arius is like, Jesus is just some guy. Athanasius says, over my dead body, I'm not doing it. I'll die. And I mean, they tried to kill him. He'd have to go hide out in the desert, all kinds of different stuff. And the fight never stopped. Athanasius is famous for a lot of quotes. One of them being Jesus that I know is my redeemer cannot be less than God. How can he be a redeemer if he's just some guy? It's a really, really good point. Athanasius also had this one that I love. He would say Athanasius against the world. So everybody might be saying 
you're not following Christ, you're not, you're, you're wrecking the country, you're being a problem. He was fine. You want me to go be a, a monk in the desert again? I, I'll do it. But I'll follow Christ. If everybody's against me, I'm going to follow Christ. And he was a little bitty guy, and he did. So I, I think Athanasius is terrific. And um, that would be the Council of Nicaea that is right, that we were talking about right there. Um, two main issues, and we're going to close with this. So, so we had you know, some, some problems in these years, 200 to 400. We had some answers, and I, and I hope you see that the, the answers were things that we even do today. And you might disagree with, with um, a council getting together, and some of our more modern church councils are... Um, you might not agree with them or you might agree with them. There's some, some ones that I agree with over the past years and there's some that I don't where it'd be kind of a group of Christians getting together and saying, hey, this is what we believe on this or that. But these, these, these four answers were all things that we can and should and are healthy to do even today. But I want to look at two main issues then from AD 200 to 400. And, and the first one being Christianity changing from promoted, from persecuted to promoted and then some of the monastic movement, and um, that's Constantine right here. I feel like he's got a pretty strong chin and an especially strong nose. I feel like uh, he looks like he could just fight a battle by himself. I had a few other pictures where he's pudgier, but I kind of like the, uh, the uh, powerful nose on, on, him, on him right there. Um, uh, so Constantine, um, you know, so we talk persecution, persecution, persecution. Constantine comes on the scene. He is uh, a worshiper of the sun god, among other gods. Um, there's some unique circumstances bringing him to being the emperor. He then goes, he goes into battle. He's in control of the eastern half of the, of the empire. He is then trying to take over the western half that really probably rightfully is his. Uh, the general on the other side that's trying to rule he uh, burns the bridge into Rome. Then he, um, as he's, I guess, escaping, he puts a whole bunch of boats out and he's going to then try to run in, just in case Constantine gets him. And uh, the, the day before, this is 311, 312, um, Constantine's praying to the sun god somehow. Anyway, he gets a dream of a cross and a bunch of guys put it on their, on their shields. We could look in a, a bunch more detail. Basically, go into battle and they win. And uh, the opposing army then tries to flee. They run across their little boat bridge. A bunch of them die, drowned, hundreds drowned, actually, uh, including the general. And Constantine, he's got the whole empire. So he says, hey, it's this, it's this uh, son of God. Um, he's mine. I'm, Christ I'm a Christian. We're all going to become Christians now. Um, he quickly has um, Council of Nicaea, uh, he quickly, the Edict of Milan, saying uh, Christianity is no longer a persecuted religious group in the kingdom. In fact, it's not even persecuted. It's, it's the, the uh, religion of the kingdom now. And people converted in droves. And many were certainly true believers, I'm sure. And I'm sure many, many, many were not. And, and you can kind of see, Andrew and I were even talking before, the, before this, you're persecuted and your aunt's been killed and you're separated from your kids because they, they fled to 300 miles away and you just can't see them again. And all of a sudden it's, it's legal and I'm not persecuted and I can go 
be, I, I don't just have to work in my own little community. I can go out in the community and be a doctor to the, to the public. And, and again, in the kingdom, in, in Rome, different things were true of different groups, but you weren't hiding out anymore. And, and look at what God has done. And then people were really quickly saying, this government is my God. So even some of the excesses that we see in our modern world today of my life will be right as long as I have the right guy in office or, or if only, the, you know, that's not new. I'm saying, hey, look at what God has done. And then maybe he's ushering in, is, is the kingdom done? And is, is this the new heaven and the new earth? How, how great is this? What is, what's Revelation talking about here? Is some of that stuff going on in Daniel happening now? Is this some ki- kingdom promises? I mean, you can see why you'd go there. You've seen your kid dead, burned on a stake, like one of those original pictures I had. You can see why they'd be feeling that. And so Constantine says, uh, yeah, I, I like being the guy in charge. In fact, uh, let me help you make some decisions. So he goes, uh, the Donatists that I had mentioned earlier that had pastors that had burned their Bibles or had not burned their Bibles, they came to him and they said, hey, Constantine, you know, you want to decide on this one? Well, he decided against the Donatists because he wants Let's all be friends. Let's all be friends. We just we want the kingdom to be, to be solid and friendly and nice. The Donatists said, "Well, fine, we're out of here for you know, two hundred more years or whatever." But it established some precedent that Christianity broadly has fought since then. Of we have a problem, we want the government to help us out or to make a decision or kind of to combine the church and the state in ways that it is not meant to be. Um, and so when the reformers came along and said separation of church and state, not that they shouldn't interact, but that the state cannot tell the church what to do. That was the definition of church and state our reformers pushed. It's pretty radical thinking. Now, did some of the reformers go farther than I think is right on, on continuing on? I'm the state and I am the church. Yeah, I think so. Many of them did. Um, but you can kind of see how they, how they got there. Um, trying to think if there's anything else under that. I think that's good. Um, I guess that's my last slide. And then just a little bit on um, the monastic movement. So Constantine makes Christianity legal and even promoted. Well, what's the, what's the end result of that? Well, you're, you're then having people saying, oh, I want to be in with the cool kids. Oh, I want to be in with the people that, oh, are you, you're giving some uh, extra whatever to this group or that group, I'll join them. Oh, I'm a wealthy guy. I need a job for my second son. Hey, he wants to be, uh, he wants to be a, a church leader. So uh, here's some money, take him and you know, clean him up a little bit and he'll be in charge. So really quickly, those kind of problematic ex- excesses were happening. And so then true believers were saying, I, I go to a church and I don't think the pastor's converted. I mean, he, how, do you, how do you even get there? We have two other godly people. They, no, they wouldn't be, nobody would hire them because the dad's shoveling money. So monasticism became an increasingly popular thing. And there's um, uh, Anthony is a famous one from the mid-200s. He goes out in the desert. He didn't want anybody around him. He would do, at times, he would sit on the top of like a large rock and be sitting up there alone through all weather, and his disciples would hike out and bring him food and water at different times. You know, kind of the, the 
ancient days pole sitting from, from what, the early 1900s? Sitting out there alone. But their, their, their goals were, I want to be dedicated to Christ. And what is this junk that's just invading, invading Christianity? So um, uh, Anthony was out there. Pacomius was out there. A lot of the, the great church fathers that we're probably not going to hit. Uh, Basil the Great, some of the Gregories were out there. Christostom was out there for a while. Um, Benedict, he started, he started the Benedictine Society, and he had these four rules. Monks must be committed to permanently being uh, following Christ and obeying the rules of the monastery. Monastery methods of discipline for sin were established. Physical work was expected for all. And eight times a day, prayer and reading of Scripture were focused upon. Those are some good things. And the monasteries started and the convents started because they were saying, hey, it's, maybe it really is true that it's not good for us to be alone. Maybe we really do need other people. So I'm sitting alone out here on a rock, but maybe I do need other people around me. Um, and, and, and we know, and we'll look in following centuries, how many times that got really, really wacky and how by and large it's not a healthy way to live. But you can kind of see, they were trying to think through, how do I do Christian life? And I would just encourage you before I close in a couple of minutes and Andrew um, comes up here, think through with the monastic movement Think through what you would do in that situation. So now we have lots of options. You know, if you schooling choices for your kids or, you know, you want to be the most conservatively modest dressed person in the universe, go crazy. If you want to have some more freedom, you're allowed to do that in society as well. Um, in your approach to scripture, there's, there's so much freedom now that we are used to. But at that time, you're thinking through, at what level do I do this or that? And we have a tendency of seeing people like us and saying, well, that's how it ought to be. And um, you know, with myself growing up, I, just as an example, so as a Christian, uh, a guy I looked up to a lot in our church growing up was a police officer. Well, he, was, he ended up being a narcotics detective, but he was a crazy good athlete in high school and college, and he was just a super cool guy, and he, and he loved Jesus, and I thought he was, I thought he was great. And uh, so then I go to seminary, and uh, in a, in the, on the East Coast, and I'm surrounded by tons of Mennonites, tons of them, like, and they love the Lord. And I referenced someone being a police officer, and I still remember my coworker, well, he's actually kind of my the lead guy and a boss. He was like, oh, I can't imagine. And I said, what? And he's like, carrying a gun, potentially killing someone made in the image of God? How, how, how could that be? And I remember, th I said, like, aren't you thankful for the armed forces? And if, like, we live near Philadelphia where on the nightly news, murders don't get on there. It's only gruesome murders. I mean, it's, it's, uh, aren't you thankful for those that protect? And this was a really godly man. And he was like, as I read scripture, I would much rather die than cause someone else to be killed and go to hell. And I remember thinking, I, I, this guy, had never, something like that had never crossed my mind. I will tell you, for me personally, I disagree with him. But I, I, re I remember thinking, here's a godly guy who loves the Lord, who reads the scriptures, and as he stands before God, he's making a decision for himself that he would not do a job like that. And I'm okay with that. Now, if everyone was like that, it could be a little scary out there, right? But... As Christians, we must think through 
how do I stand before a holy God? Not just, I'm a lemming and I'm following along what everybody else is. So if you see some people in Christianity that are a little bit different than you, let's do this. Let's really be people that push back to scripture. What does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? And remember, especially at this time, we're indebted to these monasteries that churned out manuscripts, churned out manuscripts when other people by and large were not. So we could have a copy of God's word in our own hands. So Andrew, why don't you come on up here now and we'll trade this and you can share. Can you uh, go back to the slide of the animals and people living there? Just for a nice backdrop. Yeah, you know? terrify everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, yeah, so we just have a few minutes left, and I wanted to start by saying that when, when Thad asked me uh, last year if I wanted to help with this church history class, uh, we were talking a little bit about what Thad mentioned last week, that we want to uh, tell church history through the lens of people's stories, through the eyes of people. Um, I think Thad mentioned last week, not just like, okay, on this date, this happened, on this date, that happened, and uh, not that dates are bad. Dates are really important, and the development of doctrine is really important, but we want to show real people, real stories uh, in history, uh, which is what I'm going to do uh, today. I, I don't know if you remember or not, but I texted him uh, not long after that because uh, in my early church history class, I learned about Blandina, a slave girl, and uh, I texted that, and I was like, if we're telling church history about the stories of people, I'm talking about Blandina. Uh, I get really excited, and I hope you will too, uh, because I think this is really a great example of, um, it's tragic and it's sad, but it's a great example of what Thad's been talking about just in terms of uh, messy Christianity, false accusations about the church, and the persecution that came from that as the church was uh, developing. So I'm just going to read, this is from, um, Thad mentioned uh, Eusebius, he was an early church historian. Uh, this was less than 100 years after the events took place uh, based on firsthand accounts. So I'm just going to read directly from his account and then make a couple points after that. All right, uh, first off, picture the scene. It, well, you don't have to picture it in your mind. you got it right there behind me. Uh, it's an amphitheater in Gaul, which is modern-day France. Christians have been gathered to be publicly tortured and killed. And Eusebius describes the events like this. The entire anger of the people, governor, and soldiers was stirred up furiously against Sanctus, the deacon from Vienne, and Matarus, a new convert but a noble fighter, and Attalus, a native of Pergamum, where he had always been a pillar and support, and Blandina, a young slave girl through whom Christ demonstrated that things which seem lowly and obscure and contemptible to men are of great glory with God. Through her love toward him revealed in power, not boasting in mere appearance. We all shuddered, and Blandina's earthly mistress herself, one of the martyrs, feared that on account of bodily weakness, she would be unable to make bold confession. That is, they thought Blandina was going to reject Christ in the face of persecution. Blandina was filled with such power that she was delivered and exalted above those who were torturing her by turns from morning till evening in every way, so that they confessed that they were conquered and could do nothing more to her. They were amazed at her endurance because her whole body was mangled and broken, 
They declared that just one of these forms of torture was enough to destroy life, let alone so many and so great sufferings. But the blessed woman, and there you can see, um, I think Thad mentioned last week, the, well, and again today, the idea that martyrdom was the greatest good, the ultimate good. The blessed woman, you'll hear later, the blessed Blandina. The blessed woman, contending nobly, grew in strength by confessing her faith. She found comfort and rest and relief from the pain of her sufferings by exclaiming, I am a Christian and we do nothing vile. And there you see the false claims of the pagans, right? I think Thad had mentioned um, they ate babies. Some of the pagans claimed that Christians ate babies and were doing all sorts of crazy things. She said, I'm a Christian. We do nothing vile. Blandina was hung on a stake and exposed to wild beasts who were supposed to attack her. She appeared as though she were hanging on a cross Because of her ardent prayers, she inspired the other combatants with great enthusiasm. They looked upon her and her ordeal, and they saw with their outward eyes in the shape of their sister, the one who was crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for Christ's glory has fellowship forever with the living God. Since none of the wild beasts at that time touched Blandina, she was taken down from the stake and thrown again into prison, preserved for another contest. On the last day of these contests, Blandina was again brought in, together with Ponticus, a boy who was about 15 years old. Every day they had been brought in to see the sufferings of the others and had been pressured to swear by the pagan idols. But they stood steadfast and despised the idols so that the mob became furious. They had no compassion for the boy's youth, nor any respect for the tender sex of the woman. So they subjugated them to terrible sufferings, and took them through the whole course of torture, repeatedly pressing them to swear by the idols, but to no avail. Ponticus was encouraged by his sister, so that even the pagans could see that she was confirming his strength. After nobly enduring every torture, he gave up his spirit. But the blessed Blandina, last of all, having encouraged her children like a noble mother, and sent them ahead in victory to the king, herself suffered all their conflicts and hurried after them, exulting and rejoicing in her departure as if she were called to a marriage supper rather than being thrown to wild beasts. After whipping her, giving her to the beasts, and burning her with hot irons, the authorities finally dropped her into a basket and threw her to a bull. The beast gored her again and again, but she was now indifferent to all that befell her because of her hope, her firm hold on all that her faith meant, and her communion with Christ. Then she too was sacrificed." The pagans themselves admitted that they had never known a woman suffer so much or so long. At the time, there was kind of a romanticizing of martyrdom, like I said. Uh, So some of the details of that might have been a little exaggerated. Um, But that's a picture of what was really happening uh, throughout throughout the Roman Empire prior to the rise of Constantine. And like Thad said, when you think about generation after generation of this being reality, uh, when Constantine comes along and, and all of a sudden now you have the establishment of a state-sponsored religion, uh, it seems a lot like divine intervention. And it's easy to look from our perspective of kind of being inundated with the cultural Christianity that we experience today and say, well, man, look at all the bad that came from the development of a, of a state religion and the Roman Catholic Church and all of that. Uh, But if when you put yourself in their shoes, it kind of makes a lot of sense. 
So uh, we're basically out of time. Uh, that's, that's what I wanted to say was just talk about Blandina. And, and I want us to consider when we're in the coming weeks when we're thinking about the events that are going to be taking place, the development of creeds and councils and uh, the establishment of the church and that kind of thing. I want us to put people in their real life experiences that they, that they had then. Uh, so that we're not detached from it, but we're really seeing it develop in front of us. And we can stir each other up in our own context and, and consider how to stir each other up, like uh, the writer of Hebrews says, to good works. So that's all I've got. Should we close in prayer or is that? Okay. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for an opportunity to see how your mighty hand is working in history uh, and has brought us to the point we're at now. We thank you that you have been faithful to your people throughout all of history. We see suffering, we see persecution, we see times of um, enjoyment and blessing and, and relative ease and comfort. And in all situations, you are faithful and your guiding hand is with your people. We thank you for that glorious promise that you will be faithful to complete that which you started. And through all the trials of this life, we can rest assured in knowing that the marriage supper of the Lamb awaits us. Please bless the rest of this service this morning as we uh, continue to feast on your word. In Jesus' name, amen.